0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the second episode of The Collab, the official podcast of the Cyber Collaborative. My name is Al Zaski and I serve as a Cyber Collaborative graduate assistant. I am also joined by Fulbright scholar Robert Sudak. Today, we have the esteemed pleasure of being joined by Christopher Painter. Christopher is the current president of the Global Forum on Cyber Expertise. He is also on the Global Commission on the Stability of Cyberspace. He's also a former coordinator for cyber issues at the US Department of State, as well as a senior director for cybersecurity at the White House. And he also served in the FBI Cyber Division as a deputy assistant director.
1: Thank you, really happy to be here with you guys.
0: So why don't we start off with a good icebreaking question. How do you personally understand the term cybersecurity?
1: Well, I I've sort of lived this uh this term, I guess, for the last, you know, in government I worked on cyber some kind of cyber issues for about twenty-eight years. And now it's been about thirty since I've been out of government or a little more. Uh even before there was an internet, I was working on some of these issues. Oh, there was an internet, but there wasn't a World Wide Web. So I started as a federal prosecutor, um, going after these these Uh, cybercrime cases. And then, as you said, you know, went to the main justice department, then went to the FBI, then went to the white house, then went to the state department. Uh, So I've had this progression in different jobs and seen different aspects of it. But, but, you know, I think my first exposure was really dealing with cybercrime because that I think was, uh, it had became more of an important issue, even before cybersecurity, but to me, cybersecurity and fighting cybercrime and cyber threats are, two parts of the same whole, or two sides of the same coin, because on the one hand, cybersecurity means securing your networks, making sure that you're taking all the, 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 you know, doing all the things you should do, the security networks, having the hygiene, uh, having responsive uh, capabilities. For nation states, for the US and others, it means being able to respond to cyber threats. But on the other hand, you know, uh, there has to be consequences for bad actors. So you have to make sure you're both protecting your networks engaging in good cybersecurity, but responding when bad things happen and really shaping what the environment is. What are the rules of the road for cyberspace? So I, I think of cybersecurity, not in just technical terms, but very broad policy terms. You know, I, I often have said, and I will say again today, that I think one of the problems people listen to hear the term cybersecurity and very senior policymakers, whether it be a cabinet secretary or a minister, or even a C-suite of a, of a company, We'll tune out and they'll say, Well, that's some technical issue, it's a boutique technical issue. You guys, you technical guys, go deal with that. Where to me, cybersecurity really is a core issue of national security policy, of economic policy, of human rights policy, and ultimately also a foreign policy. So, it's really a core policy issue that we need to integrate into everything else we're thinking about.
2: Uh- Thank you, Chris. You mentioned, uh, and, and in fact, the uh, astonishing track record of uh, somehow introducing cyber topics into decision makers, both first when it comes to the kind of cybercrime issues, uh, and then also the cybersecurity as a policy issue, both at the federal level, at the White House State Department. And now for uh, probably 10 10- last years you were pretty active, one of the leaders worldwide when it comes to working on cyber diplomacy. Right. So uh, why do you, why do we need cyber diplomacy? <laughs> what is the role of cyber diplomacy uh, if you are kind of introducing us one more time to a new domain where cyber is so important?
1: Well, I, I think that's part of it, right? So um, cyber diplomacy, using our diplomatic tools to, to achieve both the positive goals, and you're trying to achieve in cyberspace and also combat the negative things we're seeing in cyberspace is again a core national security economic and human rights issue so so we should treat it as a diplomatic priority too, a diplomatic issue um, and not as just a technical issue now it's true you have to have some technical knowledge to understand what the trade space is but you really need to be able to understand these larger policy issues you don't need to be a coder to understand the importance of these issues on the world stage to to our, our growth and development And also the threats we're facing, both from nation states and non-nation states. So, you know, this idea of cyber diplomacy, I mean, people have been doing negotiations and talking about these issues for a number of years, but the idea of a separate field of cyber diplomacy really only started relatively recently. Um, You know, 10 years ago, almost, you know, 10 10 years and a month and a half ago, um, I moved over from the White House to the State Department to create really the first office Senior level office anywhere in the world dedicated to cyber diplomacy. And when I say cyber diplomacy, it's more expansive. It's not just cybersecurity, it's looking at cybersecurity issues, cyber crime issues, fighting cyber crime issues, human rights issues online, internet governance issues, uh, that full panoply, counterterrorism issues, uh, but also how do we shape what we call international security? How do we shape the environment? What are the rules of the road? How does international law apply? All of these really weighty issues and bringing that all together because these are not stove, you can't treat these as stovepiped issues. You know, th- these are, uh, although people do different parts of these, you have to bring them together. I'll give you an example. When you have a country like Russia wanting to have uh, states be in control of the internet for internet governance. Well, that has an effect on human rights because they're worried about, you know, what they think is a destabilizing content, for instance. And it has an effect on security, too. So you need a place where that comes together. And that's, that's what we tried to do. And interestingly, after that office was founded you know, back uh, in 2011, there are now about 40 offices like it around the world. Uh, in uh, both countries, I consider more uh, allies and partners and also countries that are less so. So uh, you know, many, many countries now have cyber ambassadors or cyber high-level offices. And that's very important because we need to look at these as as, as core policy issues. So, you know, I can go into a lot more detail on what the role of uh, cyber diplomacy is. And the way I break that down is just like regular diplomacy, one part of that is negotiating, you know, uh, going out and negotiating with other countries. I think one of the prime examples of that was the long-term negotiation and deal that the U.S. reached with China on the theft of intellectual property back in 2015 after about two years of trying, making it a core issue, President Obama at that time said this was not just a cyber issue, this is an issue we're willing to take friction in the overall US-China relationship, so a big deal. And we were able, after a long period, to get them to come to the table and agree that theft of intellectual property by cyber means to benefit your commercial infrastructure, so not just intelligence gathering, but using it to benefit your commercial infrastructure was something no country should do. We got that agreement in the G20, and that had an effect for a while, you know, it didn't, you know, things broke down when the relationship broke down, but I think that was important. We built alliances, we dealt with other countries, we worked with other countries uh, to have whole of government dialogues, you know, not just the foreign ministries, but the defense ministries and the interior ministries and and the whole club, the commerce ministries, you know, so you have a real integrated response. Uh, We built coalitions of countries to to respond to shared threats. you know, uh, you know, trying to get countries to work together because these threats are often cross-cutting and hit all of us uh, to deal with deterrence and some of those issues. And I can go more into that detail on that as we go through. And we also, you know, did things internally, tried to mainstream this as a new diplomacy issue throughout our foreign ministry, as many other countries have done, training officers, making sure they understand it, and using some of our cyber, you know, our diplomatic tools to deal with cyber issues. There was a big case where... Um, for a protracted period of time, for almost two years, a year and a half, uh, our financial institution websites were under attack from Iran. Now, that wasn't the end of the world. They didn't get into the back room of these banks or anything like that. They didn't change data. But it, it was a nuisance. It made it harder for people to reach those websites. It made it more difficult. And in fairness, the banks were like, well, this is a nation state actor. What should we do? And we use a diplomatic tool called a demarche you know, to go to the, this was a botnet. So there were tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of computers located all over the world. Um, and they had concentration points, like in Germany and other countries. So we went to those countries using what we call a diplomatic demarche. Now, before I became a diplomat, demarche sounds nasty, doesn't it? It just sounds angry, like you're yelling at someone. And often that's what the demarche is, like a country demarches another, it means stop doing that or do this. Um, but this one was a nice demarche, it was help us, you know, use whatever tools you have uh, in your country to help us mitigate this threat and we'll help you. So building those, those uh, alliances. So, um, and then the last one, which is I think we're gonna spend a fair amount of time talking about, is this idea of what, is, what are the rules of the road in cyberspace? What is the framework for greater stability in cyberspace? What is the, how do we shape this environment? with all these threats out there from nation states, from criminals, from others, how do, we, how do we have a more vibrant, secure environment in the future where the good things in cyberspace, economic growth, social growth can flourish uh, when we're combating the bad things? And, and so that means, you know, what is a framework of stability? What, kind, what are the, the components of that? How do we uh, talk about those rules of the road? And then, how do we respond when pe- people break that? Uh, and so, happy to talk more about those issues in depth.
0: Great, thank you. Um, actually, so talking about cyber diplomacy, it really seems the timing is perfect because just a few days ago, you know, we witnessed a important breakthrough like moment when the UN adopted a final report uh, by and by consensus by the OEWG. I was wondering if you could actually, could you explain a little bit what the OEWG group is and how it builds off previous work from the GGE? Yeah,
1: sure. I mean, so this has been a long-term effort. This idea of shaping the environment, what how do we achieve stability in cyberspace uh, has been an effort that we and other countries have pursued in the UN. We've also pursued in other regional organizations and even uh, multi-stakeholder organizations like the Global Commission on the Stability of Cyberspace have contributed to these discussions. Um, the break, the big breakthrough moment, the original one was in 20, I guess, 13, uh, and the GGE when it was, and there were failed ones before this. So the GGE is a group of governmental experts, it's called. So this is a collection of countries. It's about 15, they grew to 20, then 25. So not every country, all the P5 countries. So China, Russia, the US, uh, UK and others. So, you know, so you had very different views of the world in that. And the first breakthrough in 2013 was an agreement that international law applies in cyberspace now that you know that may seem like something that is self-evident but there were a lot of folks who were arguing that no rules applied in cyberspace it was a free fire zone um you know anything went or the wild wild web whatever you want to call it um and other people argued well the rules apply but we need different rules for cyberspace which itself can be very destabilizing there are different rules for cyberspace in the physical world, because cyberspace really is part of the physical world. It's not so divorced from it. So, you know, that was a big deal because it meant things like the UN Charter, it meant things like uh, international humanitarian law, which deals with, uh, you know, conflict applying cyberspace. Now, how they apply, not so clear, and lawyers are still working this out and there's still discussions about it, but that was important. Then in 2015, there was an agreement that, that you know, Even though we see on the papers all the time about cyber warfare or big cyber wars, that doesn't really happen. We haven't had a big cyber war. We haven't had the cyber 9/11, the cyber Pearl Harbor, whatever else people like to talk about all the time. That hasn't happened. But we've had very serious cyber incidents that are below that very high threshold. And these have been thefts of information like the the Chinese event I was talking about. They've also been disruptive uh, attacks uh, like the Saudi Aramco one is a good example and, and others. We've seen mixed uh, blended attacks like uh, the election interference in 2016, which I have to say the cyber people weren't even ready for. We were focused on traditional attacks and not this kind of blended attack, this information warfare. So you had this range of, of, um, of things that happen all the time. And then the question is, well, how can we do something about that? So the idea of voluntary norms of behavior, which are essentially rules of the road, voluntary rules of the road, uh, and we were able to reach an agreement with um, with all these other countries in 2015, that for instance, countries shouldn't attack the critical infrastructure of another country absent wartime. Now, if it's wartime, just like in the physical world, you can bomb a railroad track, there are rules. You have to not go after civilian targets, you have to have the proportionality, et cetera. But as I said, we haven't reached wartime most of the time. But below that threshold, you shouldn't do it. Countries shouldn't go after the critical infrastructure of another country at all. Um, you know that provide services to the public and and that was agreed A uh, country shouldn't go after the computer emergency response teams they like the ambulances of the hospitals uh, so we had a number of these voluntary norms that were agreed to in 2015 and also this idea of um, uh, confidence building measures so these are just ways to de-escalate situations to, to make sure there's communication they can be things like hotlines they could be things like exchanging doctrine they're practical things uh, and you take international law norms and confidence building together. And that's a stability framework that we're trying to build from. Now in 2017, unfortunately, that group of governmental experts couldn't get anywhere. Their consensus, these are consensus reports. And it was geopolitical. I mean, Russia and China were not willing to make any compromises. We weren't making any progress. No one wanted to backslide. So it just couldn't reach consensus. And then uh, there was a resolution in the UN to create this open-ended working group, which is not just 15 or 20 or 25 countries but every country, like all, what is it, 196, I think, or 197, I always get that wrong, but um, a lot of them. Um, and there was a lot of frankly doubt that they'd be able to reach a consensus, because again, they had to reach a consensus. Um, and the good thing about this was it got many more countries into the game. Many more countries were discussing these topics for the first time. They hadn't really discussed it at depth before. And, and that helped elevate this issue, I think, and make it more important. And the other good thing is uh, against all the 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 doomsayers who were saying would never reach consensus they reached a consensus just last week as you said they came out with a consensus report which is a huge thing now you know i think i and others would argue what they agreed to in the report wasn't a huge advance over what had been agreed before but the difference was this has been agreed you know explicitly by all these countries at a political level and there were some other good things in there. There was more discussion of capacity building, more discussion of, of other stakeholders. So there were some good nuggets in there. And the best thing about it is there was no backsliding. So the big worry was that the commitments that were made before people would start moving away from these things like international law applying or norms. And instead there was complete affirmation of those. So that's very important. Now there's another GG that's also taking place and they're supposed to come out with a report in the next couple of months I believe. So we'll see where that goes um, but but i'm also happy that we're able to reach inclusion there'll be a lot more work both in the un but frankly in other forums we've done a lot of work with the organization security in europe uh you know osce on confidence building measures we worked regionally with oas the organization of american states asean with the eu and others so this is an ongoing uh effort but um so i'd say it's a breakthrough because they reached a consensus and it's a good platform. It also sets a level of accountability, uh, not momentous necessarily, but momentous because it happened.
2: Okay, great. Uh, I think we're going to back go back uh, at one point to the um, fact that you mentioned that there are so many uh, platforms, so many organizations active in this sphere of cyber diplomacy already. Uh, not only interstate, not only international, but also. Uh, those one, including a lot of stakeholders, including yeah. the private one, including expert groups and so on and so on. Uh, but you mentioned, uh, and I will probably follow up now on this, you mentioned that uh, in, the, in the consensus report, there is also uh, bigger, st- higher, um, I would say, focus on, bigger focus on uh, a capacity building itself. Right. Uh, and, and that, that that's that interests me because uh you mentioned uh, and i would totally agree that because there is a, a a lot of new players a lot of new national players active in this debate it's per se already uh, kind of added value it's already something good and now we see that also a little bit maybe the focus is shifting from this uh strict focus on what applies what's the rule of engagement so to say and so on or maybe on different topics which uh, other like big players, uh, also seen them, but they were not the key ones.
1: Yeah.
2: And, and now when the group is more, I would say, uh, it's wider, the first and foremost, but also, um, smaller state, uh, developing states are more active part of the discussion. Uh, the capacity building is there. And, uh, so, so, I, I'm, I'm not pretty sure whether everyone, uh, who now audience would understand what does it mean in fact, capacity building in yeah. cyberspace. So maybe let's start here. So, uh, what is cybersecurity capacity building, and what's the goal there? What's the tools there? Who is doing that?
1: So, so one thing, as you noted, that many countries in these discussions raise capacity building again and again as something that was critical to them. Because a lot of countries, you know, yes, they want to be involved in these debates about you know how international law applies, or you know what acts of war, or all these other big issues, but they also need to, to get. Core capabilities; they need to be able to build their own capacity to deal with it. So, you know, I think of capacity building as foundational to everything else. Um, if you don't, if you don't have countries around the world, ri- you know, rising to a certain level, they're going to be left behind, and that's not acceptable. And it's not just an issue for the big countries; it's an issue for every country. Um, and it's not just an issue for countries; it's a multi-stakeholder uh, um, enterprise. I mean, it's not just governments, but it's the private sector and civil society that play a role in capacity building. Now, what do I mean by capacity building for cybersecurity? Um, I mean, you know, it could be everything from technical capacity building, like making sure that you have trained law enforcement officers, trained technical people to be able to deal with threats, uh, to uh, the policy issues. And the policy issues include, uh, and I'll mirror this, I'll map this on the Global Forum on Cyber Expertise, because the whole point of that organization, which I'm very proud to be the president of the foundation of, uh, is, is to make capacity building, you know, rise its level of importance, give, give it more prominence, but also to coordinate it better around the world. And so we have 130 members and partners now, over 60 countries from all over the world, uh, private sector uh, actors, uh, members, um, and also civil society and academic groups. And, and that's great. And the point of that is to bring people together to discuss these issues. And we've divided it into working groups. So one working group is on strategies and policies. So capacity building to have a national strategy, every country should have a national strategy on cybersecurity. Uh, That's important, it's important for signaling, it's important for organization. So that's one issue of capacity building. Another one is, and that's a blueprint for what the rest of the government will do. And ideally you build that in a multi-stakeholder way. Uh, the other is, uh, you know, training diplomats to deal with these issues that I just talked about, about norms and, and uh, you know, uh, international law and accountability. Uh, a lot of countries are just new to this game. So just helping them with that and helping uh, implement. There was a lot of talk about implementing the norms in this OEWG. Well, implementing means really putting in the work and countries need help doing that. So that's another thing that the GOC has organized around. Another big area is incident response, having computer emergency response teams or C-CERTs, uh, having the ability to deal with critical infrastructure issues. So our second uh, working group deals with both incident response and critical infrastructure. Um, the third one's on cybercrime, which is a big issue everyone's facing, but that's part of the cybersecurity issue. And the fourth one is on uh, skills and education uh, and awareness, which are all related because and that goes to a lot of the training that needs to be done. And finally, there's, one-on standards, and I think that represents a big swath of the cyber capacity building that needs to be done, and the, the GFC brings those different groups together, the stakeholders together, um, which is important, but we also have certain operating methods. We have working groups, as I said, to deal with each of those. We also have a something called the Sybil Portal, which is a portal uh, where we have over 600 different best practices, other items that have been contributed, so countries can go and, and help get help uh, we have a research agenda, a global research agenda, where we identify gaps and then try to get those things filled uh, by uh, commissioning research. And then finally, we have, um, what I think, the most important part, the matchmaker function. If a country comes in, recently a country came in and said, we need a national strategy. We don't know where to turn. So we try to get lots of different entities, including um, governments, but also private sector and others. We try to get a group together to help that country. And they work with it, and so that helps answer the mail. Now, so that group's been incredibly successful. It's grown over the years. Uh, I'd say the the challenges. I mean, there's a number of challenges. One of them is that um, you know cybersecurity capacity building is not getting enough resources around the world. There are some countries that are very generous: the Dutch, the UK, uh, some companies, Microsoft, and others, uh, the US, and others. So, but, but it still is not getting the push it needs. Uh, the coordination function is trying to take the narrow resources we have and try to make sure they're better uh, employed around the world. But we need cybersecurity capacity building to be treated as one of the core development goals. And that's something we pushed for in the open-ended working group, but unfortunately didn't make it into the final report because um, there wasn't consensus. But that's, we need this to be mainstreamed because it's such a foundational important issue, particularly for developing countries. We're doing a very big project, for instance, in Africa now, which I think desperately needs help in this area and really willing to do it. And so uh, we need to make sure we work with these, these various groups to do it. Cause I, I do again, think that, that that is the glue or that's the, the foundation stone on which you build everything else you're trying to do. And all these other discussions are happening including responding to some of the big threats we're seeing.
0: So you brought up earlier the uh, civil port- portal. It seems um, like a really amazing tool to have in our arsenal here. Is there a way that our audience, or I guess cyber practitioners can actually contribute to that portal?
1: Uh, yes, yeah, so, I mean, it's an open portal. And what I'd say is people, you know, people should go to the, the, the gfc.org, our website, uh, look into actually becoming a member or partner of the GFC. And there is information there on how to do that. As I said, we have a number of institutions, uh, you know, and, and civil society groups too that are members, and certainly country members too, and partners. Uh, And that's the best way you can use Sybil without being a member or partner. Uh, It's a resource for everyone, but you know, it's best to be part of this community because it's such a valuable community to share information as a platform. So I'd encourage that. Our next, unfortunately, virtual meeting, (laughs) as everything is virtual these days uh, will be in June. Uh, So we encourage people to look into this before then. And certainly, you know, um, uh, Again, there's contact information on that webpage for people to, to uh, follow up, but we'd be very more than happy to follow up with people to do that because we really want more people to get involved around the world.
2: Yeah, really, I really, I, from my perspective, I would really agree on the, on the idea that uh, um, in cybersecurity discussions all the time, but my mainly in technical terms, we are saying that, uh, uh, of course, the weakest link um, it's always, uh, let's say, the human factor, or we should focus on the weakest link, and so on. But when you think about cyber diplomacy and specifically capacity building around the world, one more time, and you mentioned uh, the global problem of cyber criminals, uh, it, as we already seen even from the Interpol reports, uh, this there 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 should be no safe heavens for them, and if there is one place in Earth that uh, there are no capacity to somehow track them or uh, to do anything with the data that we have on uh, malicious activities from the, from the web there. Uh, this is already not the problem of the country. This is a global problem.
1: Yeah, it, it really much is. And I think there are countries, look, there are some countries who unfortunately uh, provide safe havens to criminals um, and they do it for whatever reason they're doing it. But there are a lot of countries who just don't have the capabilities. So giving them the capabilities, working with them as I think an important part of the solution, and, and that's what we're trying to do. And also, you know, from just a selfish point of view, every country should want every country to have these capabilities because these, whether they're nation-state activities or criminal activities, these are always international events. And if you have countries that are the weakest link, as you say, or don't have the capability, but I'm a smart cyber criminal, I'm going to route my attacks through that country so it's harder to find me and so it's an all of our benefit for them to have strong certs and to have strong law enforcement but also have strong policies so that they can be players in these issues across the board
0: great and do you think there's any larger lessons we should be learning from recent lar- the recent large attacks that we're seeing like uh, the solar winds text
1: yeah i mean it's an interesting thing you know on the one hand We've had these large uh, intrusions, uh, solar winds in the Microsoft Exchange server. We've also had major other incidents like ransomware, which is a non-state, mostly a non-state issue, which is which is huge. Um, you know, but they're not new. We've had lots of different attacks and intrusions over the years. So we've had like the NotPetya worm that caused huge damage to Murask and, and global, uh, you know, global economic interests. We had the WannaCry worm that took down the NIH in the UK. So we've had lots of bad malicious incidents. The SolarWinds um, intrusion looks like it's probably espionage, but that doesn't mean you have to sit in your hands and say, that's great, You know, good on you for doing that. You still can respond and should respond. Uh, the exchange server looks like that might be the case too. Although I'd argue the exchange server um, is more of a, um, it's to some extent more of a, a a reckless sort of espionage because it left all those computers open to other attackers and we see ransomware attackers going after that now the good thing about these things if you can find a good thing is it raised awareness you know you have a new administration in the u.s coming in and i think they're taking this very seriously uh they have you know president biden has already said he's going to make cybersecurity a priority at every level of his administration He's already designated a high level people at the White House. I think this is going to be a core issue. You know, Of course, we'll have to see them walk the walk and not just talk it, but they've already started walking it, so that's good. Uh, and the other good thing is a lot of the key people on high level positions in the US, including the Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, the head of Homeland Security, Ali Mayorkas, uh, the DNI and the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, all have dealt with these issues before. So they're not coming into this cold. They understand cyber and that's important. Um, so, so I do think we, we should, to the extent we can, use these as lessons, you know, both to raise the awareness, but also to understand we're very vulnerable and we need to be better at protecting our networks. And then finally, you know, and it's a little harder when it's a success but also we're terrible at responding to attacks. You know, we have, you know not just the US, but uh, I'd say the US and, and, and most of our partner countries, have just been awful at doing this. Um, and, and you know, that causes a problem in itself. If you if there are no consequences for bad actors, uh, if there are no consequences when we see election interference or things like not pedia, that, that serves the purpose of making it seem like that's okay. And it creates a norm of inaction. And it means that they'll do it again. And it means that other countries or bad actors who may be on the sidelines, they'll say, okay, well, why shouldn't I do this too? It's costless and I get some benefit out of it. So we have to be better at making sure there's accountability, uh, which we have not done a good job in, and at the same time not being escalatory, not making this you know more you know not, not making the situation worse. And that means you know engagement, that means signaling channels, but it also means taking action. And to me, the best way to do that is collectively. Yes, a country can act alone, but if you're acting in partnership with other countries you know, as a, a loose coalition of countries who were who are doing things against a bad actor, that's better. And we've seen some good good examples of that, the EU um, through the cyber diplomacy toolkit, you know, recently imposed sanctions, economic sanctions on a number of actors, Chinese, Russian, and others. Um, I have to say, I didn't think that would happen. I didn't, I, I loved the, the diplomatic toolkit, but the idea of all the EU countries agreeing, I thought, well, that's going to be hard, but they did it, you know, so that's great. Um, you know the us has done use sanctions too i'd argue we need to use them smarter and more strategically i think we have to use all the tools we have for this collective effort there's been a effort on behalf of my old gang of the state department on the deterrence initiative which is to try to build uh, a, a group of countries to to act collectively on this and i think that collective action is always more helpful it's more legitimate uh it builds better understanding and i think it leads to better stability in the long term so so we have to deal with those issues, too, because this is not the last time we're going to see bad attacks. We're going to see this going forward. And we have to both harden our own targets, engage diplomatically with countries we like and work with them, but also make it clear to countries who are doing this, this is unacceptable. And if they're criminals go after them uh, with more, I think, dedicated international criminal takedown efforts, which is something for ransomware groups and others that we need to do. But, but it all comes down to this issue I talked about before. It has to be a national and international level priority it can't just be an awesome brand. you know I, I use the example sometimes of you know when the Skripal poisoning happened within a, a week Theresa may said it's russia within two weeks there was a massive campaign with a, a lot of countries taking action you take not the big worm that was then attributed to russia uh, it took six and a half months for about six countries or seven countries to say it was russia But when they said that they said and there will be consequences but that's not a way to really you know change behavior so you have to figure out how to do that and and i look i i want peaceful resolution of disputes i want these things to be non-escalatory but if we don't take action i think we're lost um but part of that is also building capacity so people understand and have the capacity to to use what tools they have uh to make sure we have a more safe environment in the long term
2: Thank you, Chris. On this, uh, I would say, uh, fourth looking uh, note, like that attribution is only in the first step, not the last one when it comes to uh, international community. Uh, um, we will be probably wrapping up because a lot of intense topics have been covered. I think a lot of our audience uh, will visit now uh, both the Global Forum on Cyber Expertise. Uh, or even the Commission on Stability of Cyberspace and how how it works, and especially we will follow closely the next development at the UN level and not only at the UN level. Uh, thank you very much for your time, for your, that you shared with us all these uh, insights. Uh, and uh, I hope uh, next time we're going to have the chance to speak. Uh, then we're going to be just summarizing what, uh, what other next uh, conclusions, consensus happened on the global level and how the cyber capacity building um, became the, already the, the, the core when it comes to even, even the development strategies of not only countries, but also international community.
1: Uh, and thank you for that. It's been great being with you. I'd, I'd urge your, your watchers and your listeners to you know, two things. One, if this is an area you're thinking of getting involved in, Evolved. this is an area where you know I, I said this often when I was at the State Department and other places to, to younger folks coming into this issue. Um, this is an area you can have more impact in than most others because it's a new and evolving area. It's not all figured out this is something where you even if you're relatively new can have an impact. And, and second, you know if, if you're so disposed, if you have the resources, if it's an interest of yours, do get involved in capacity building. It's really a key thing that we need to, to work on around the world. So, so really wish for that. I wish I could say, I think all the problems are gonna be solved in a year in two years or five years. I've been saying that now for 30 years. Uh, I think this is a rich area that's gonna have lots and more to come and lots more growth, unfortunately, and lots more challenges, but uh, it's important for us all to come together and to work on that. And I think uh, to make sure that we're having an impact.
0: I think we can all share in your sentiment there. Before we go, can you explain the background on your device right now? For our audio listeners, we are over Zoom and Chris has a rather interesting background. Could you explain just a little bit?
1: When I was at the State Department, you know, most people in foreign ministries have little knickknacks from around the world of of things they, you know, collected. uh, And I had some of those too but I tried to make my office a little unique. So I had movie posters where hackers or computers were some of the main characters or had the main role. And there were about 30 of them. I've identified like 75 movies now, but my favorite one, I saw this when I was in grade school. I actually sat through this twice. So that tells you something about me, uh, was this movie Colossus of Forbin Project. And here's the original poster here. Uh, and you can tell it's a 1970s movie because people are smoking and stuff. But the basic idea was, Uh, the U.S. um, built this big supercomputer colossus in the mountains in Colorado to control its nuclear arsenal and take the man out of the middle and have perfect deterrence so the computer made all the decisions. But then the Soviets, because in 1970 it was the Soviets, they stole the information. They built their version in the Urals. And the two computers started talking to each other. They became self-aware. It's a great movie, trust me, Um, but very dystopian. Uh, and uh, they decided to take away all civil liberties to protect humankind from itself and take away you know and take over the world so it was the very first movie long before war games or Terminator or all these other movies where computers took over the world and then this um, my the background that I had before um, was this and what this is is uh, the it is in Bletchley Park in the UK and it is the first uh, Programmable digital electronic computer in the world, and it was it was there uh, to break the high end Nazi uh, code. So everyone knows the story of Enigma and the Enigma code, and how at Bletchley Park in the UK they broke that code using these what they call bombs computers. But there was a higher level code that was used by Hitler and the high command, and that was the Lorenz code, and that was so complicated they had to build this big computer, and they did it. So. You know the story is that movie poster is the dystopian colossus, but this, the real colossus, uh, unlike the movie, which ended in bad and dystopian world for everyone, this actually helped save the world. So computers and computer technology can play a good role and a peaceful role, and we hope that that will happen in the future. Indeed, we hope
2: we hope it's gonna <laughs> it's gonna go this direction rather than the. The other uh, yeah. Yeah. and uh, taking into account all this machine learning discussion also already international discussion when it comes to regulating the artificial intelligence in the future or other technologies there's uh, no
1: shortage of issues machine learning artificial intelligence Internet of things vulnerabilities with all these um, you know we could have a discussion for several hours exactly
2: <laughs> exactly thank you very much one more time and uh, Hope to have an have an opportunity to host you in the future as well.
1: Great, me too. Thanks very much.